I wander through each chartered street, near where the chartered Thames does flow, and mark in every face I meet marks of weakness, marks of woe. Listening to Burdens, Episode 8, Terebinths. When you lose someone, you may feel a lot of things. You may feel wounded, bruised, betrayed, hurt. You may feel more abandoned than you've ever felt in your whole life. But one thing you don't feel, if you're like most people, you don't feel that your loved one has just completely vanished into non-existence. You don't feel like life is terminable. Sure, your loved one is no longer with you, and you don't know how to get to where he or she is, but there's this haunting sense, this instinct, that is a part of your humanity that feels that that person is somewhere, not nowhere. That's why religious traditions have developed all over the world, even in the absence of divine revelation, to say that there is an afterworld or an underworld or some absolute into which we are blended together. We come up with euphemisms for death. We say that one has passed away or we speak of our dearly departed. We speak of death as a journey, but we don't talk about finality. We talk about the end, but what we mean is the end of this life and hopefully the beginning of another. Death is personified maybe as a grim reaper, as something horrible, monstrous, or maybe as an angel, but not without personality not as a cold, hard, scientific fact. We don't think of death that way. I'm not trying to make a persuasive argument here. I'm just saying that when we lose someone, we feel that they go somewhere. We wonder where they are, and we wish we could be with them. The main character in the story you are about to hear is dwelling on that very thing. Maybe it'll resonate with you. Take a listen. Terebinths. Elhan planted a terebinth the day after his wife died, long ago enough for it now to have grown to twice his height. He nurtured it with water and dung, pruned back the dead limbs, and kept the ground around it clear of rivals competing for soil, sun, or water. In the spring it flowered with red and purple blossoms, and then pea-sized fruit pushed out the blooms until they fell and littered the grass below. By summer, 
Lush green leaves bushed out of limbs that spread widely over the top of a grassy hill, providing shelter from the sun. The branches stretched out into the sky, as if the tree were a priest interceding on behalf of his supplicants. To Elhan, they were a mother's arms, and he often ran to them when he sought a respite from the world. His wife had loved Terebinths. They reminded him of her. Although he had lain her frail body in the family tomb alongside the rest of the dead, it was the tree he ran to when he couldn't stop thinking about her. Trees yield better memories than cold stones. One summer their son Silas slipped on a wet mossy rock and cut his knee. He held him in his arms and whispered soothing words into his ear while the boy writhed painfully, screaming, It hurts! Don't touch it! It hurts! But the boy's mother hurried along the banks of the river and disappeared around the bend, leaving him wondering if, unable to bear listening to her son's cries, she had abandoned them for home. The boy's knee had begun to swell, the bleeding hadn't stopped, and he began to worry that he'd never be able to calm him down when she came running back to them with something pinkish and yellow in her hand. She squeezed it, and it produced a clear, thick fluid which she applied to her son's knee. She told him the pinkish-yellow thing was a gall from a terebinth. When insects chew on their leaves, terebinths bleed and form misshapen pods that look like crooked little horns. They're like scabs, only they form on tree branches instead of little boys' knees. She told their son terebinths are special because their wounds heal the wounds of others. She always knew how to explain things. The night she died, she said, only a part of me is leaving you, Elhan. The best part will always live in your heart. But Elhan's heart was too ruined and desolate to house anyone, especially her. Anyone foolish enough to seek shelter within its leaky, bruised chambers soon found himself evicted by its two permanent lodgers, bitterness and regret. They had claimed sole occupancy. What could he do about it? Nobody has much control over his own heart. She had not come to live in his heart as she had promised. The only time he felt her presence was when he was under the terebinth tree. When it was a mere sapling, he was visiting it every day. By the time it had grown to match his own height, he visited less frequently, maybe once or twice a week. For a while he lost himself in his work, going there only on the anniversaries marking her birth their wedding and her death, and on the occasional Sabbath. But now he was there every day again, and he spent more time on his knees under its wide canopy than at home or in the pasture with his flocks. He considered that maybe she didn't live in his heart, or with the tree, or with God, or anywhere else, that she was just gone. But he couldn't accept that. He knew she lived. She was somewhere. Yet, he knew she was dead. He replayed that horrible night in his mind too many times to count, her shivering hot body boiling in his arms, the black hair sticking to her cheeks, her fierce brown eyes still strong and locked onto his, and her parting words, I can't stay, I can't stay. He was holding her when she took her last breath. He knew she was dead, but her passing had not kept him from feeling her presence, 
sensing that she was still somewhere alive. He rejected the terminality of death, its finality a myth, some made-up tale told around fires to scare children. No one can just disappear. The thought was too outrageous for him to bear. He couldn't accept it, which is why he spent so much time now under the tree. Elhan heard his son approach, but he didn't turn around. He was too absorbed in thought. He did not want to be disturbed. He did not want to talk to anyone. Dad, interrupted Silas. He didn't respond. He knew it wouldn't work, knew Silas would keep trying to rouse him from his reverie, but he ignored him anyway just to have those few seconds more away from others and the barren life they represented. Dad? This time Silas spoke more sharply. Yes, son, he said without turning around. Are you all right? I'm fine. You've been out here all day. Sarah says you haven't eaten anything. I'm not hungry. He kept his back to Silas, still facing the tree. Dad? Yes, son. When are you coming back to the house? You need to eat. In a little while. The two men did not say anything for a while. Sheep grazed in the pasture nearby, and occasionally one would bleat, trying to get their attention, but neither man broke his focus. The older man kept his eyes on the tree, and the younger man kept staring at the back of his father. It was a perfect day, one of those sun-tinted, cloudless afternoons, when the air was so clear you felt there was nowhere and no reason to hide. But even on a clear day, secrets hide in the darkness of the soul, where the light never shines unless someone forces its harsh rays into those inner, hidden crevices. "'What do you do out here, anyway?' asked Silas. Elhan knew Silas deserved an explanation. He turned stiffly on his knees to face him and saw his son's face, which was frustrated and worried. "'I talked to her,' he said. "'Tell her all the things I used to say and the things I wish I had said. I tell her about you and Sarah and the animals and what I've been doing with my days. I ask her for advice, ask her to forgive me.' Silas thought about this for a while. Does it help? he asked. Help what? You know, help you with the grief, your sadness. Elhan sighed a long sigh. Some, but it still hurts. I will never get over it. Then why spend so much time out here? It's not good for you to seclude yourself like this. You should surround yourself with people who love you. You should be back at the house with me and Sarah. You wouldn't understand. Sitting under a tree all day is what I don't understand. You say it doesn't help with the grief, so why do you do it? Dad, I'm worried about you. Why do you sit out here? It's like this, Elhan tried. When I sit under this tree, it feels like she is with me. I talk to her and she answers. She tells me where she is, what she's doing. I don't know how to explain it, but when I'm here, and only when I'm here, she feels alive to me. But she's not alive, Dad. She's gone. Still on his knees, Elhan turned from Silas to face the trunk of the tree again. The movement looked defiant, childish. So you're going to stay here? How long? 
Elhan did not seem able to hear him. Dad, will you eat? Dad. Finally, Silas gave up and trudged down the grassy slope to the house. Elhan watched the breeze bend the tall, sparse grass and traced each root's wooden finger with his eyes until it disappeared into secret places in the earth. He waited until he could feel her again. Sometimes it took a long time. He had learned to be patient. He waited and steadied his breath. The air touched his nostrils lightly as it entered, filled the cavity of his body, and exited through his mouth, drawing out every distraction, every thought but her. Finally she returned. Her presence soothed him. A faint smile parted his lips. He felt she was asking him to do something. He felt it more strongly than he had felt anything in a long time. Yes, it was her voice he heard under the tree. She was asking him to do something for her, and he aimed to do it. He rose early the next morning and left the house before anyone else stirred. If they knew what he planned to do and why, they would try to stop him, so he moved quietly, hoping not to disturb them. His bag contained a few provisions, a skin of water, no food, and a small dagger with a wooden hilt. He hoped he would not need the dagger, but he had to be prepared. He could not fail. The ferry was supposed to be running, but he did not expect it to have many passengers at this hour. Good. The fewer people there, the less likely someone would get in his way. It was foggy, and the morning light was gray, and as he passed the sheep in the pasture, one of the animals lifted its head from grazing and gave him an accusing look. He ignored it and hurried on in the direction of the river whose current moved in the same direction as his heart, which was moving according to the whispers of his wife. He came to the river as the sun was beginning to break. The fog still curled heavily in the valley, and the man was relieved to find no one else waiting on the dock for the ferryman to arrive. He wore a cloak with a hood he had pulled down to obscure his face, hoping it would keep anyone from recognizing him. Soon the old ferryman arrived. He stiffly bent over and lifted the passenger plank, then motioned for the man to board. He had light brown cataracted eyes, almost gold, that nestled in his brow like almonds in their shells. He wore a simple short-sleeved brown tunic cinched at the waist with a leather belt, his arms were tan and muscular from years of rowing. Elhan tried to read his expression for signs of suspicion, but the ferryman's face was hard and indiscernible, betraying neither thought nor emotion. He nodded a greeting, dropped the fee into the ferryman's calloused hand, and seated himself in the stern, praying no one else would arrive in time for the first crossing. The morning air was still as the two men floated beside the dock, waiting to see if any other passengers would arrive. Finally, the ferryman wordlessly untied the moorings, cast them onto the dock's wooden planks, and used one of his oars to push the boat into the river's current. He began mechanically rowing a straight lateral line toward the other shore. He faced Elhan with his back to his destination, but conducted his work as if he were alone, so accustomed to the constant interchange of passengers on his boat that he had ceased acknowledging their presence long ago. Elhan averted his gaze anyway, and turned his head downstream, pretending to admire the river 
as it disappeared somewhere in the distant fog. He tried to calm his nerves and reminded himself why he was doing this. When the boat reached the middle of the river, Elhan cautiously rose to his feet and took a tentative step toward the bow. The unexpected movement broke the ferryman's aimless stare, and Elhan heard his voice for the first time. It boomed loudly on the water, surprising him, because it seemed so out of proportion to the small, wiry frame that produced it. "'Sit down,' he said. Elhan ignored the command and took another tentative step in the ferryman's direction. The boat rocked side to side in a show of disapproval. The ferryman stopped rowing. "'What are you doing, you idiot?' he shouted. "'You're going to tip the boat over. Sit down!' The ferryman pulled the oars into the boat and used one to jab at his passenger, who clumsily shifted to his right to avoid the oar, causing the boat to rock even more wildly. Elhan tried to dislodge the ferryman from his seated position by grabbing the oar and jerking it hard, but the water had made it slack and it slipped from his grasp. The ferryman was angry now, and he continued shouting at his passenger in a vain effort to get him to sit down while Elhan kept advancing. He was now too close for the long oar to be of any use, so the ferryman dropped his weapon and from his seated position grabbed his passenger's cloak at the shoulders, jerking left and right, trying to force him overboard. The boat rocked wildly in the river. They were now several yards downstream from the ferry's original destination, drifting in the river's current. Elhan knew he had to dislodge the ferryman from his seat somehow. Forgetting he was on an unsteady boat instead of solid ground, he seized him by his hard shoulders and tried vainly to push him over the side, but the force of this movement had a greater effect on the boat than its steersman, and it capsized, dumping both men into the river, who were still holding one another in a struggling embrace. Elhan involuntarily released his grip on the ferryman when he hit the cold river. He swallowed a mouthful of water as he plunged into the current, and felt the sandy bottom with his foot. The water was not very deep. He pushed his way back toward the surface to get air, and spinning around to look upstream, he saw the ferryman, who was the stronger swimmer, making his way back to the overturned boat. One of the oars floated next to him, divorced from its partner. Elhan snatched it up and bounced upstream, keeping his eyes focused on the ferryman, who had reached the boat and was now trying to ride it in the water, but he was having a difficult time because the water was too deep for his foot to find purchase on the river's floor. Vainly, he pushed off the bottom, stretching his arms as far over the boat's hull as possible, trying to pull it over, but the boat was too big. He tried this several times, too distracted to notice Elhan sneaking up behind him with the oar in his hand. When he got within striking distance, Elhan swiveled back and then forward, using all the strength he could summon to his arms since he was unable to anchor himself. The oar swung clumsily a few inches from the ferryman's head. The ferryman felt the air from the near impact and turned from the boat to face his attacker. Elhan saw the man's eyes widen in horror as he swiveled back for another swing. He heaved the fattest part of the paddle at the crown of the ferryman's head, and this time he did not miss. The oar vibrated damply in his hands and produced a sickening thumping sound when it made contact, and the man slumped with a moan against the overturned hull of the boat. 
then drifted in the current, half-conscious, face up. Elhan pushed the limp body away with the oar to put some space between himself and his victim. The river was shallow enough now for him to stand up. He planted his feet and braced himself against the hull of the boat to stop it from drifting. Then he reached as far as he could around the hull and rocked the boat back and forth, throwing his entire weight into it until he was finally able to ride it. He scrambled over the side and fell exhausted onto the wet decking inside the hull. He lay there, drifting. He didn't know how long. He may have slept for a while. He wasn't sure. The whole morning felt like a dream. He did not concern himself with the passage of time or whether he had seriously injured the ferryman or with the consequences he would face for assaulting him and stealing his boat. He focused on nothing but the orders his wife's voice had whispered into his ear. He lay still in the bottom of the boat and let the sun dry his clothes. From the shore the boat must have appeared to have been abandoned. He lay still and let it drift with him as a stowaway toward the next town, several miles downstream. Elhan sat up, peered over the side of the boat, and saw that he was already approaching his destination. Here and there, mud-brick structures appeared on the shoreline, at first sparsely, then closer together, until finally he could see a cluster of docks on the riverbank and the settlement beyond. With the oar he had used to bludgeon the ferryman, he steered the boat over to one of the docks and berthed it. He climbed out of the boat and stood waiting for some sign that would tell him where to go next. He could not hear her voice anymore. He thought about what she told him under the terebinth. Mother, she lives in Halidon. Find her. I have a message for her. She and her mother never got along. Her father had divorced her for reasons that were never explained to Elhan. He pried only once cautiously testing his wife's willingness to open the one door she had always kept locked from him, but she refused. If there was a key to that door, she had swallowed it long before they met, and only someone she trusted more than Elhan would be able to coax it out of her, and she trusted no one more than Elhan. If you love me, she said, never ask me about my mother again. She's alive, but I have buried her, Elhan. I have my reasons. You will just have to trust me. He promised never to ask again and kept his word for the rest of her life. Now she reached out to him from Sheol to send him to her mother with a message. Perhaps she always thought there was time. There's always time until there isn't. He obeyed his wife's instructions, although he had not figured out how to locate his mother-in-law. He had never met her. He didn't even know her name. What was he supposed to tell her? He hadn't received the message, only instructions to find her in Halidon. He had found Halidon. What now? Say, fella, can I help you with something? A young, dark-skinned man with a string of fish slung over his shoulder interrupted his thoughts. He was sizing Elhan up. You look like you're lost. Elhan realized his clothes were still damp despite his drying out in the sun. His bag dripped suspiciously onto the wooden planks below, and his beard and hair were matted from the tumultuous swim in the river. I'm looking for a woman, an old woman. The days of her years would be about eighty-five now. Uh-huh. The man studied him while rubbing his chin. Let me guess. 
You've got spirits. Elhan's blood ran cold. He swallowed hard. How did you know? I've seen enough of your kind to recognize the look. The man with the fish sighed heavily and pointed toward the settlement. Take a ride at the end of the path. Look for the thatched roof hut with the scarlet curtains. He found the hut without any trouble. It was in a high traffic area where merchants, fishermen, and farmers frequented the road to and from the river, not far from the docks. Scarlet curtains framed each side of an open doorway, just as the man with the fish had said, and a strong aroma confronted him as he approached. There was no door. He stepped into a cool, dark anteroom. A breeze blew off the waterfront into the house and stirred a collection of mollusk shells and chicken bones hanging from strings in one of the windows. It must have been a waiting room. Three straw-bottomed chairs lined one of the mud walls. No one was around. He stood on the hard-packed dirt floor and studied the room trying to decide where to look next. Before him hung another scarlet curtain across a doorway, and he realized that the pungent smell was coming from the room behind it. Judging from his impression of the hut outside and the shallow dimensions of the anteroom where he stood, the largest portion of the dwelling lay inside where some kind of incense was burning. He was about to move the curtain aside to take a peek when a voice from within crackled at him like thorns burning in a campfire. You may position within. No weights. He pulled back the curtain and inhaled a headful of smoke. The air was stuffy and hot. There were no windows, and the only light came from a few candles distributed throughout the room. In the dim light, he could see that the smoke was rising from a shallow basin on the floor to the left of an impossibly scrawny, leather-skinned old woman sitting on a cushion. Her thin, white hair strung down either side of a wide part that tracked the middle of her skull. The smoke made his head swim, and he suddenly felt very light. He checked his hands to see if they were still attached. He felt like he was floating. The sensation was strange, but at the same time he felt safe, like he was in the right place. A sense of well-being washed over him. The old woman opened her mouth to speak, and colorful lights flashed from her sunken cheeks. A rope of thick saliva tethered her lips, and her tongue rolled, unbounded by the encumbrances of an upper or lower row of teeth. Have you come to perception the dead, or have you come to perception your destiny? He caught a movement out of the corner of his eye, something in the dark shadows on his left. The pink muzzle of a heifer emerged from the darkness and bobbed. Another joined it. The cows shifted forward, and the shadows retreated so that he could see their faces. They chewed their cuds and gazed at him through innocent eyes. Soon, an entire herd of white-faced heifers emerged, more than the room should have been able to allow. Instead of questioning their presence, he smiled beneficently toward them. "'Sit yourself,' the woman ordered. His head was floating. It felt like it had expanded three times its normal size. He tried to obey the woman's command, but his first attempt at sitting failed as the air in the room thickened and bounced him upward. He concentrated and tried again, this time lowering himself slowly and deliberately to the floor until he sat across from the woman, face to face. 
The smoke was even stronger nearer to the basin. His words slurred. I've come with a message. From your daughter. I've offspring no child, said the woman. She gathered a handful of seeds from a bag next to her on the floor and tossed them onto the fire in the basin. The added fuel brought a sudden burst of flame, which died down quickly. The smoke increased. He could barely see the old woman now. Your daughter, he said. My wife. She's dead. So it's the dead you've come to perception? Dark your eyes. You must unsight the eyes to enclose the grave. His eyes closed almost involuntarily. Why had he come? He couldn't collect his thoughts. He was supposed to say something. I'm supposed to tell you for her. She thought she had time, but she had to go. She had no time. The old woman didn't seem to be paying attention. She chanted something under her breath while swaying her thin body to rhythms he could not hear. Why didn't you come to her? She didn't know where you went. But I found you. His eyes remained closed. A satisfied grin crept across his face. She sent me to tell you... If the old woman heard him, he could not tell. She continued chanting in an unbroken trance. He felt like he was floating. He knew he should say something, but he couldn't focus his thoughts long enough to remember why he came. Then he saw her. He beamed at her, but she looked worried. He started to tell her he found her mother, but she stopped him. No! She extended one of her small hands palm up toward him, and he saw her unsmiling, smooth face, the face he thought he'd never see again, her brow furrowed. Elhan squinted his watery eyes. Is it really you? The woman nodded. The face was familiar. The olive skin, lips like sea currents, and cheekbones like unfurled sails against the storm of her black hair, all assembled into the vision of his wife but he could not read the alphabet of her features. They were jumbled up into an expression he had never seen before. She did not seem happy to see him. She appeared hurt, disappointed, confused. I heard you under your terebinth. I came just as you said. Your mother... Go back! The features pinched her face together, and a tear rolled down her cheek. She shook her hair and he felt the breeze that carried the damp scent of rain. You went your way, and I went mine. We cannot be together now, my love. But what am I supposed to do? I can't just go back. You said you would not leave me. The face softened. We'll meet again. The one who forks the path can piece it together. The image faded. He cried out to her, but she vanished into smoke. He turned to the old woman. Where did she go? Bring her back, he demanded. It's hard to submission the dead. You know what to do. Bring her back. What is this? Are you still holding on to old grievances? That's all in the past, can't you see? She's gone now. Doesn't that hurt you at all? We've lost her, and you never came back. 
never said you were sorry. She's your daughter. How could you have let her go? The old woman stared at Elhan mutely with a puzzled expression. I know this. I'd do anything to bring her back. Anything. She's better than you ever were. Elhan's head rang like a bell, and he could not see through the smoke in the dark room, but he was sure he heard a new voice, a familiar one, coming from the anteroom on the other side of the curtain. Dad! Light burst into the room along with a burst of fresh air, and the old woman's eyes grew larger as she drew back in response to someone coming toward her from behind him. A hand gripped his shoulder and shook him. Dad, what are you doing here? Son? I... your, your mother, she... The voice spoke to someone behind him. He heard coughing, then a second hand slipped under his arm and helped him to his feet. Do you think you can walk? asked Silas. Elhan nodded dreamily. He's trashed, said the other man. Elhan no longer flew. He was being carried away before he had been able to complete his quest. Sarah watched Silas's father through the window of their house as he systematically planted the saplings in concentric circles around the large terebinth. Do you think he's okay? she asked. An earthenware pitcher tipped in her hand and dripped water as her attention focused on the spectacle outside. She was young and thin, her body holding on to the girlish frame of a woman who had not yet carried her first child. She had arranged her dark hair in a single braid that fell down between her shoulders and pulled tightly against her round scalp, giving her the appearance of a twitching starling perched on a tree branch. He's better. It took a week to get the henbane out of his system. He must have had a splitting headache. No, I mean, is he going to hijack more fairies and consort with mediums? What can I say? He's mixed up. Mom's death hit him hard. Sigh. It's been twelve years. It's not normal. Him nursing those trees day and night, he's neglecting his work, neglecting you. Silas peered out at his father and watched him dig a new hole, drop a leafy sprig into the ground, and push the dirt around it so that it would stand in place. He turned back to his wife. Leave him alone, he said. He had no separate life apart from her. He tried to cope with it when she died, tried to distract himself with work, thinking time would heal him but it didn't get easier for him. What do the elders say? Will he be punished? Silas chuckled. Well, that ferryman is pretty mad, but he got his boat back in one piece, and I explained everything to him that Dad was out of his mind with grief. I think he'll cool off. Dad should be able to stay out of trouble as long as he never does anything like that again. Will he? Let's hope the new trees will keep him busy. Elhan measured for each sapling, dug a hole slowly and deliberately, buried the roots in the ground, and poured a generous helping of water from the spring onto each new terebinth before moving methodically onto the next spot. He was planting a grove of trees, with his wife's in the center. He would still visit her tree from time to time so that he could remember her. He would talk to her, although he knew now that he had been a fool to think that she had been speaking back to him. She was somewhere, but she was no longer here, and he knew that his only chance of ever seeing her again was to move forward without her. 
He stood and arched his back to relieve the soreness from his work. He was out of water again. He dusted off his hands, picked up the empty wooden bucket which lay on its side, and started downhill toward the spring. Halfway there he stopped and turned to gaze at the larger tree. It was in full bloom now, its blossoms accenting the green foliage in red. The saplings he had planted encircled it in several rows. He planned on adding a few more, and then he would be done. One day, no one would be able to see her tree. And some time after that, he thought with relief, everyone will have forgotten that he had hijacked a fairy and consulted a necromancer in the village downstream looking for his dead wife's estranged mother. Someday, everyone now living will have vanished and no one will remember who had planted the terebinths. They will only see the trees planted in a pattern and know they have a hidden history. That is all. He stared hard at the tall terebinth and sniffed. I lost my head there for a minute, didn't I? His words broke into an expression that lay somewhere between a chuckle and a cough. The terebinth looked back at him silently, its branches waving a tangled dance in the breeze. I can't bring you back, I know that now. We have to move on, you to your place, and I to mine. He smiled wistfully at the tree, but he knew that there would be no whispered assurances, no messages from the dead. You never really believed you could live in my heart, did you? You were just trying to soften the blow. You couldn't bear to hurt me. But it wasn't your fault. Elhan picked up the bucket to head back toward the spring for more water. I've got a few more things to do before my road forks again and joins with yours. He felt tired and his joints ached. He looked at the bucket and noticed it quivering in his hand. We have to be patient, he said. It won't be long. The terebinth seemed to understand and swayed in the breeze as if it were waving a farewell. Elhan turned with his bucket in hand and walked downhill toward the stream. Thank you for listening to Burdens. If you like what you hear, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, visit drewkaiser.com.